It's from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. Daniel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, Four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and said, Thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night vision and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong, It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots, And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till the thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hairs of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousands thousands stood before him. The court was sealed and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which, had, which shall not be destroyed. And now we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 21. In verse 13 we read, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, 
But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church in the gates of Hades, or hell, shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should not tell, that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again that you have blessed your church with your holy and inspired word. And from it, you have taught us the doctrines of grace. From it, we learn of Christ the Savior. From it, we learn that faith by Christ in the Savior is that which saves us from the death, from death and hell itself. From it, we learn how to live our lives in a holy and godly sense. And from it, we learn to keep our eyes on the future and anticipation of his coming. We pray that as you have blessed your word in times past for your people, so your spirit would be present with us today that we might understand and comprehend the greatness of our salvation and the great love that Christ has for us. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. He didn't do it on just one occasion or two occasions, but he constantly was telling people that he was the Son of Man. Here in Chapter 16, verse 13, we have one of those references in which Jesus does call himself the Son of Man. He asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? And they responded, or rather I should say, he asked, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they responded as it is recorded in the text. Now the people of Israel were quite well familiar with the phrase, Son of Man. But those who were willing to listen to Jesus, no doubt recognized that there was something different about the way he was using this term, Son of Man. They were familiar with the term Son of Man because a hundred times or so in the Old Testament that phrase appears. But Jesus was using it in a different fashion than what they would have heard before. He was using it as his name, as his title. He did not say that he was a son of man. No, he says that he is the son of man. It is his title, his right, his prerogative to use that particular term. Now, in the Old Testament, there are two passages that are of extreme importance and are different from all the other passages where the phrase Son of Man appears. These two passages are used in conjunction with the Messiahship of our Lord Jesus Christ. We actually read one of them this morning in our call or in our worship service. It uses the term 
in a messianic fashion. Yes, Israel had sinned against God, and as a result of their sin, God was judging them. They were being afflicted. Therefore, they needed to have God's mercy. But the psalmist, the psalmist Asaph, who wrote this particular psalm, recognized that they needed more than to be delivered from their troubles. They needed to be brought back to God, and God needed to do that. And so, in verse 17 of Psalm number 80, Asaph prays, Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Now you'll notice there in the 17th verse, the psalmist speaks of the man of your right hand. I think we're all probably familiar with the term the right-handed man. A man on our right hand. It's an expression that we use to describe someone that we can trust, someone who will not fail us. And while I have been unable to determine where this term right hand of man comes in our uh, English, I'm convinced that it comes from Scripture. And from one of the places it can come from is here in Psalm 80 verse 17. Now the psalmist recognizes that God needs to restore Israel so that they will not turn away from him again. But rather than speaking about God doing the work directly, he here refers to God using a man of his right hand. Being on the right hand is a place of honor. And God, the psalmist says, has a right-handed man, a man who will not fail him. But you will also notice that as that 17th verse continues to read, not only does he refer to the man of God's right hand, but he describes that man as the son of man. Let me read the verse again. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you make strong for yourself. So that the right-handed man of God is one whom the Scriptures call the Son of Man. And it's not simply that they need to be delivered from their oppression, but they need to be delivered in such, a fa- in such a way that they will not, according to verse 18, turn away from God again. And who can accomplish this uh, great task? What man is there that can actually not only bring deliverance but do so so that the people of God will never turn away from God again. It's one who is anointed. It's the Messiah. It's Christ. Now, there is another passage that also is used in conjunction with this messianic nature of the Son of Man. And that's the other passage that we read. Daniel chapter 7. And I would invite you again to turn with me. In this seventh chapter of Daniel, 
Daniel has a vision. He says in the second verse of that chapter that he saw the winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, in this case the Mediterranean Sea. And the four winds of heaven, we would uh, simply suggest, might be whirlwinds or hurricanes. Now, the sea in the scripture, when it's used in a figurative fashion, is used to describe mankind. Mankind is like the sea, unstable, constantly raging and roaring. And so, as a result of these great winds blowing up the wind or the the sea of mankind, there emerges from this sea of humanity these four great beasts or kingdoms that are mentioned here in Daniel chapter 7. The first of them is described in verse 4 as a lion. And what the lion is, is a, a, a figure of the Babylonian kingdom. The second beast that arises in verse 5 is like a bear. And that refers to the Persian Empire, which overcomes the Babylonian Empire. The third beast that is mentioned is in verse 6, and that takes the shape of a leopard. And that beast is none other than the Greek Empire, led by Alexander the Great. The fourth beast is entirely different from all the others. It's not described in terms of an animal, but it is described as having great iron teeth and an eye. That kingdom is that of Rome. And it's during this time of Rome, according to what Daniel 7 says here, that God sets up his throne in heaven and judges these kingdoms and destroys them. And in their place, he creates a new kingdom. Notice verse 13 of Daniel 7. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. To to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. These first four kingdoms are described in terms of beasts or monsters. The second kingdom is, at least its leader is termed king, it's described as a man. One like In verse 13, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, this is another messianic uh, prophecy from the Old Testament. And many people think that what is being referred to here is the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes, born of the Virgin Mary. There are others of us who interpret the passage because... Uh, of the way it is described, him coming with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days as the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ after his death and resurrection. What happens, therefore, is the result that Jesus sets up a kingdom which cannot and which, which will not perish. It is a kingdom 
from heaven. It is a kingdom of heaven. The king resides in heaven and rules over all. Now, when Jesus refers to himself as the Son, the Son of Man, he's taking this title which is rightfully his and declaring to those who heard him in the days in which he preached that he was the long-awaited Messiah. It's noteworthy that the theme of Matthew's Gospel is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew mentions it by name 31 times. And Jesus, according to Matthew, is presented as the king. You remember the Great Commission, how it begins? All power is given to me in heaven and earth. A reference, no doubt, back here to Daniel chapter 7. Jesus is not simply the head of the church, but he rules over all. He is now the sovereign, dominant king over all the world. And so when Jesus makes this statement here in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? He's including his messianic title. And since the people of of the Jews were very familiar with the Old Testament and with this terminology, Son of Man, and of the particular usage which it possesses in Psalm 80 and in Daniel chapter 7, they should have recognized that Jesus was the king who had come from heaven to establish his kingdom. It's also noteworthy that here in Daniel or in Matthew's Gospel chapter 16 in verse 19 Jesus speaks about the kingdom of heaven. He says to Peter, "And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven." So what we have being described here in Matthew chapter 16 is the kingdom of heaven and Jesus is the Messiah. But now back to the question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? You'll notice their response. They say some of you, or some of them say that you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. Others that you're Jeremiah. Or that you're simply one of the prophets. The people of Jesus' day saw his miracles. They heard his preaching. They even see him using the title of the Messiah as the Son of Man. But they don't get it. They don't understand. Why didn't they get it? Now Jesus, after posing this question about what other men say about him... He directs the question to his disciples. You'll notice that he does not, in his question to them, include the term Son of Man. He simply says in verse 15, Who do you say that I am? And Peter immediately speaks. And his response is this. You 
are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, why didn't Peter answer like those other men? What was it that gave Peter a knowledge that Jesus was the long-promised Messiah? Was Peter more wise, intelligent, and studied than they? No, he was not. Jesus tells us the answer. He says in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in, but my Father in heaven. Now when he says that Peter is blessed, he is not refer, he's not using this term to praise Peter for uh, his great insight. But rather he's saying that God has blessed Peter in a most peculiar and wonderful fashion. Now it's true that God blesses all men. God is good to, the, to those who, uh, who are evil as well as those who are good. He sends a rain upon the just as well as the unjust. But there are some other blessings that come simply by the grace of God. And that blessing is to see and to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. Now you'll notice that when Peter answers Jesus, he does not say that you are the Son of Man. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter brings together these two great titles of Christ's Messiahship. On the one hand, he acknowledges without saying anything about it that Jesus is the Son of Man. That's incorporated in the idea of him being Christ. But he also brings together this other great fact that Jesus is God, that he's the Son of God. This is what Christianity says. If someone says that Jesus is simply a good man, or that Jesus is simply Christ, but does not include the idea, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, then that man's Christianity is in deep question. Historically, biblically, Christianity brings together and recognizes these two great facts. Peter's confession then today is the confession of the church. Peter's confession is the confession of Christians. And why do Christian people make this confession? Simply because the church says so? Well, the church saying so does help. But for the same reason that Peter said it, the Father reveals to those who are His that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as a result of that, Jesus proceeds to say, Your name is Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. There is a great deal of discussion as to what this really means. It says, on this rock I will build my church. I'm not going to go into the various explanations. 
this say is that there is a true Peter, but then Jesus identifies him as Peter. That is the name that Jesus has given to him. It's the name that recognizes this work of grace that has been done in Peter's heart. And it's not Simon Peter, or, or uh, it's not Simon who is the rock, it is Peter who is the rock. And Peter is the rock because of his confession that Jesus is the Christ. It's not Peter in the flesh, but it's Peter the new man who professes Jesus to be the Christ. Now over in the very last book of the Bible, in the book of Russian, chapter 20, we see, actually it's chapter 21, we see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. This is Revelation 21, verse 14. And there we have a description of the new Jerusalem. In verse 14, the walls are described. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now, the apostles were the preachers that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of Man, that he's the Son of God, that he is a Savior. And in their capacity as the called, divinely called and installed apostles, they become the foundation of the church. But now notice, elsewhere in the scriptures, Jesus is described as the cornerstone. And so the that I would present is this. There is this great cornerstone, which is Christ. And then on top of that cornerstone, you have these 12 foundations. They rest upon Christ. And upon the 12 foundations, which rest upon the cornerstone, you have the church. So that what we have in the church is the ministry and the message of the apostles which they received from Jesus Christ. So in an indirect sense, Peter, along with all of the other apostles, because of the message which they preached, Peter becomes the rock upon which the church is built. Built, first of all, upon Christ, the cornerstone, then upon the twelve foundations, and then the church. If anyone endeavors to avoid what the apostles have to say about Jesus and simply want to, in some fashion, build their lives on some nebulous idea of Christ and Christianity, they have simply missed the boat. So Jesus recognizes what God has done for Peter. And that Peter can stand now at this particular moment in time distinct from all the other men who have misidentified Jesus. Peter can stand and say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And upon that confession, Jesus says, I will build my church. Now this word church is interesting as well. Are you aware that in the Gospels, the word church only appears twice? And in both cases, it appears here in Matthew's 
gospel. I say that by the way, but because of the the idea that uh, among some that the church is plan B. It's not part of God's original plan. And the very fact that the church is mentioned here uh, destroys that argument. Now Jesus says that he will build his church. And the church is a visible representation of the kingdom of heaven that he mentions in verse 19. I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And the keys to the kingdom of heaven are the message that Peter and the apostles preached. It is the message that is contained in this book. And it is the message with which faithful preachers preach all the time. A message given by Jesus, given through the apostles for our salvation. But now there is a very interesting statement of Jesus. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What does Jesus mean when he talks about the gates of hell? Well, to understand the gates of hell, we must go back and look at the city of Caesarea Philippi. You'll notice that all of this takes place, in, uh, according to verse 13, in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a city in the far northern reaches of Israel. It was in a region which we don't hear about uh, in the Bible. It's in a region called Iturea. Iturea was governed by one of the sons of Herod the Great, Herod Philip. And Herod Philip built a city, Caesarea Philippi, on the foundation of an older ancient city. Now, the city of Caesarea Philippi it was a purely pagan city. It was the most pagan city in all of Israel. As a result of that, the Jews would not enter the city. You'll notice that our text says that Jesus came into the region of the Caesarea of Philippi. He didn't go into the city. He spoke about it. Now, the older name of the city of Caesarea Philippi was Paneus. And it was so named because... It was a city that honored the pagan god Pan. Pan supposedly was born there. And Pan was pictured as being half man, half goat. From his legs down, his legs and feet were that of a goat. From the rest of his body, he was a man, but he also had horns coming out of his head. Now, Pan, among other things, was known as the god of the underworld. He was a keeper of the gates of the underworld. And there was there in the city of Paneus, now Caesarea Philippi, a cave that mythology said was the doorway to the underworld. It was the doorway to the place of the dead. And it was called the gates of hell. Hell is a destructive force. It's where all men and women end up. Now we must not confuse the biblical doctrine of hell 
with that of the mythical doctrine of hell that would, would have been held by the people there at Caesarea Philippi. But nonetheless, we all die and we all go to hell. And there's no escape from hell. We're bound in chains by hell. But Jesus' kingdom resolves that problem. And so as a result, Jesus can say, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. There is a very interesting passage over in the book of Genesis chapter 22. There in Genesis 22, we read of the occasion when God commanded Abraham to take his son Isaac to Mount Moriah and there sacrifice him. And we are told that God or that Abraham was faithful to do so. And just as he was about to plunge his knife into his son Isaac, in verse 15, the angel of God called to heaven and stopped him. Stopped him from killing his son. And the angel says there, speaking for God in verse 16, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing you ha- and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and your descendants shall be as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And, and this is the important part, your descendants shall possess the gate of your enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, I've read to you from the New King James Translation. And unfortunately, in the reading of the New King James Translation in this particular place, it's a bad reading. I'm referring to the end of verse 17. It reads as though all of the descendants of Abraham are going to possess the gates or control the gates of their enemy. But this is another messianic passage. And if you'll look with me there at the end of verse 17 and in the beginning of verse 18, you'll see that God has provided a two-fold promise. And I'm going to read the end of verse 17 in the singular rather than in the plural. I'm going to read it the right way. There, verse 17, your seed or your descendant shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, possessing the gate expresses power. How then can Jesus say that the gates of hell will not prevail and destroy his church and his people? Because Jesus possesses the gates of hell. And how did Jesus possess the gates of hell as a man? He died. And he descended into the state of death and was there for three days. And Jesus, as the Son of Man, as the Son of God, did that which was impossible. For he broke asunder. He destroyed the gates of hell. He came to life. And as a result 
of his coming to life. Those who are his. Those who are members of his kingdom. Those who believe the preaching of Peter and the apostles are delivered by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ from the gates of hell into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said to Peter, I'm going to give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And what are those keys? Those keys are the preaching of the gospel. Jesus tell, or Peter tells who Jesus is. And as Peter preaches and tells who Jesus is, the Spirit of God enlightens the hearts and minds of men who hear so that they along with Peter can say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what we have here today in this congregation is a very blessed group of people. For you who have truly embraced Christ as your Savior, believing in Him, have now had the gates of hell opened, and you have been even now delivered from the presence and power of the evil one. And on the day of your physical death, you need fear no evil whatsoever because Christ has delivered you and now you are in the kingdom of heaven. Now, there is a great deal more that could be said about this passage. There, is a great, uh, there are a great number of other Old Testament passages that fit in with this, presenting to us the messianic nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not yet embraced Peter's message, if you have not yet recognized and acknowledged and truly believed in your heart that Jesus is the Son of Man and the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, then I implore you to seek the face of God that he might indeed grant you that deliverance. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the great victory of the Son of Man who became our Savior. We ask that this message, the message of Peter and the apostles, the message of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, would indeed abound throughout the world. That those who yet live in the kingdom of darkness those who yet live under the power of the evil one would be delivered and find the joy of your salvation. We pray this in our Savior's most blessed and holy name. Amen.